All right, y'all, we are done with Elijah. We're done with Elisha. What are we going to do? Well, we are going to do the Gospel of John. So turn to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Um, you might, as if you want to get a head start and start reading John, uh, we're going to use the chapter 1 for Advent, and we're going to go through the rest of the book probably in the next couple of months. If you would like to see a mini-series as you read ahead and you see, ooh, this could be a potential mini-series that I, I hope he covers, uh, I may or may not listen to you. So you can send it. You can email it. You can write it. Um, I would love to hear what you think would be a great mini-series in the middle of John. Okay, so Karen is strong. Karen is confident. Karen is capable. Karen is successful in everything she does. Women want to be her. Men want to marry her. Everyone wants her. Her teachers want her in class. Her coaches want her on their team. Colleges want her at her school. Sororities want her at their chapter. Church leaders want her in her ministries. Social leaders want them at their vis a visible presence at their events. Business leaders want her to lead their business ventures. And then she fails, very publicly. And when she does, her confidence collapses. Uh, her sense of self sinks. She's overwhelmed with a deep sense of inferiority and insecurity that leads to this troubling introspection and this sense of being absolutely incapable and a, a riddled sense of being weak. I don't even know who I am anymore, she says. The search for meaning can shatter you. Keith, well, he's always struggled, man. As far as he back as he can remember, when he started having conscious thoughts as a kid, he's like, I've always struggled. It's always been painful. He's always been a self-conscious kid, and now he's a self-conscious adult. He always was a deep-feeling kid, and now he's a deep-feeling adult. He was always living in quiet desperation as a kid, and now as an adult, he lives in quiet desperation. When he was a kid, he lacked hope. And now as an adult, he feels it even more. As a kid, he lacked happiness. Now as an adult, all he knows is unhappiness. So Keith reasons, listen, if there is a God, my word, he can't be all loving. Because how can I suffer like I do? He continues to reason, if there is a God, he can't be all powerful. Because how can I suffer like I do. The search, the struggle for meaning can shatter you. And then there's the telegraph. The telegraph starts reporting, I saw this article this week, what all of us over the age of 10 experience every Christmas morning once all the gifts are opened. What do we experience? Is that it? Wait. <laughs> That's it? That's all this thing is? It's over? Um, 
the Telegraph writes, there is perhaps no other time of year than Christmas where such a yawning chasm exists between what we are told we should experience and most people's actual reality. Because you see, Christmas, the Telegraph is reporting, bears an unbearable burden. It bears this unbearable burden that everybody looks to it for hope. Everybody's looking to Christmas for happiness. Everyone's looking that Christmas would give life and give light, that Christmas would yield love, that Christmas would give belonging and acceptance. The Apostle John would say that, man, we have loaded onto Christmas the struggle for meaning. We are trying to get from Christmas the meaning of life, John would say. The struggle, the struggle for meaning can shatter you. So I want to welcome you to the mystery of meaning. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. From the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word of our Lord. Please be seated. So, O oh Lord, we ask, this is such a mysterious passage, this is such a far-reaching passage, this is an unbelievable passage, so we, we need clarity to the mind, and would you make it real to our hearts, and would you do so by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, speak us back to life again. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. The struggle for meaning can shatter you. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is mentioned three times. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. In one verse, at the beginning of a book, at the beginning of John's letter, his very first thoughts, his very first words. Uh, it's also a big deal for an ancient person that would be reading this for the first time because the ancient person, this is what they would hear when they would read this verse. Are you ready? In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. The Lagos, for an ancient person, for a, a Roman person, for a Greek person, for a person that lived where Rome had conquered the whole world, the Lagos, for an ancient person, is the meaning of life. So it would read like this. Look at it again. In the beginning was the meaning of life to them. In the beginning was the meaning of life, and the meaning of life was with God, and the meaning of life was God. What's the meaning of life for an ancient person? Would you realize that it's actually the same meaning of life for a modern person? What is it? The answer is logos. The answer is reason. In other words, the modern person would just add science to it. It would just add um, technology to it. 
So it would look like something like this. You got logos or reason is the meaning of life for an ancient person and a modern person. In other words, there's, an, there's a transcendent reason. There's an ultimate rational principle that's embedded into everything, and it's embedded into everything, and that transcendent meaning is what that reason is what gives meaning to life. And so we discover second law of thermodynamics, meaning. We discover antibiotics, meaning. We, uh, we split an atom, meaning. We make an iPhone, meaning. Right? We drive a Tesla, meaning. And all we have to do is tap into it. We've got to tap into the rational reason that's embedded into the very fabric of whatever is here, and when you tap into it, when you discover it, when you live by it, you live a meaningful life. Logic, if this, then that. Philosophies, these are great thoughts. They seem to be common sense realities. Well, then that must be reality. That must be the meaning of life. So, for instance, for example, reason informs us that there is a basic principle called gravity that exists in the world. And so, to not jump off a 20-story building is to live a meaningful life. The Bible says to, to the ancient person, the Bible says to the modern person, the Bible says, I just want you to consider something else. I just want you to consider, how does reason explain hope? How does reason explain love? How does reason make sense of even feeling meaning in life? So the Bible overall says that to an ancient person. The Bible overall says, hey, modern person, have you considered this? Have you considered how reason deals with hope and love and peace and meaning? But John's not doing that. I mean, he's going right for the throat in a nice kind of way. What John says, he asks the ancient person, he asks the modern person, have you considered evil? How does reason explain evil? Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness is not overcome it. The darkness here is not a physical darkness. The darkness here is not a material darkness. The darkness here is not the absence of physical light like you would have at night or in a cave. The darkness here is a dark power loose in the world. Fleming Rutledge, she says, she describes it as this, it's an extra human force. It's an extra human power. She goes on to say it's a power that's outside of us, it's independent of us, it's not controlled by you, it's outside of you, and it's bigger than you, and it has an agenda all its own, and you get swept up in that agenda. You get swallowed by it. She goes on to say this, it's a power that cannot be defeated by a power other than one that's greater than itself. And it's not us. She continues and she says, listen, I think she goes on to say, 
Today, I think that might, we might be on the verge of getting this more than any other time in human history. I thought that was interesting she says that. You know why? Because she said the, the sunny-siders, the silver-lining people, uh, they're dwindling in America. Because, she says, we've been dragged willy-nilly out of our safe places. We see that there's no office business or political. We see that there's no school or church that's truly safe anymore. Church is not safe anymore. She goes on to say that the internet has greatly increased our capacity to share lethal information. Terror is one click away. Too many clergy have been arrested for child molestation. Too many teachers are caught, in sexu caught sexually abusing students. Too many supposedly upstanding citizens have downloaded child pornography. She goes on to say there is something ugly lurking in human nature and John, what he's going to tell us as the book goes on, what's lurking, what's loose, this darkness is called the sin, the death, and the devil. William Alden wrote about a poem about sin, and he wrote it in September of 1939 when Germany is marching into Poland in one of the most violent, cruel, obliterating world wars slaughterhouses, whatever you want to call it, and the history of humanity was unleashed. And he says at this, he wrote, sin is bread in the bone. It's bread in your bone. Uh, we would say it's in your DNA. It's so dark. It's so loose. It's so pervasive. It's so overwhelming. It's in your DNA. And John says, how do you reason that? How do you make sense of dark power in the world? And more importantly, how does reason overcome it? How does reason deal with evil. And one of the most popular ways of dealing with it is saying, well, they must have had a bad childhood. It must be some chemical imbalance. It must be, it must be, it must be. And all of us, we all know when we hear these things, I just don't think that's it. If we're honest, Remember when the, no, I'm not going to do that. All right, the struggle for meaning can shatter you. Shatter you. What's happening, though, in chapter 1 of John? What's he doing, though? What, what's going on in this passage? Here's what's going on. John is about ready to tell you the life of Jesus. John is about ready to talk about a historical person who lived in time and space and walked this earth and did amazing things, and he's going to record it. He records it. And he's getting ready for you to read it. And what he wants to do is he's, he's saying, here's the foyer, and he's about ready to take you into the movie theater. And he's the guy that's handing you the 3D glasses. And he says, put these on. Because when you head in there, I want you to see Jesus this way. I'm going to give you a pair of glasses so you can see. So when you see Jesus calling his disciples... I want you to see Jesus this way. When you see Jesus turn water into wine, 
I want you to see Jesus this way. When you see Jesus heal the man, the dude at the pool, you see Jesus talk to the religious leaders, you see Jesus converse with the woman at the well and forgive her. When you see Jesus pour miraculous signs, you see him walk on the water, you see him say the most incredible things when you see him. I want you to see Jesus this way, John is saying. When you see him, enter into the dungeons of death and shake it off and rise from the dead. I want you to see him this way. How does John want us to see Jesus? Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I hope you have a 0.5 millimeter mechanical pencil because what I want you to do is underline the word life or box it or triangle it. I do not want you using a highlighter or a pen. I cannot believe anyone would write in a highlighter or pen in their Bible. You need a 0.5 millimeter pencil to be able to do what you need to do with the text and not make it look like a mess like my wife does. I cannot, <laughs> cannot believe she uses a pen that touches her Bible. I cannot believe she uses a highlighter or multicolored highlighter in her Bible. Okay, here's what we're going to underline. Life, right? You're going to box it. You're going to triangle it because, because the life here is not a biological life. The life here is not a material life. The life here is not a, a physical life. You know what the life here is? The life here is original life. The life here is uncreated life, primary life, fountain life, source life. The sun is the center of our solar system, right? Okay. The earth, have we come to a consensus yet on how many planets there are? Is Pluto a planet still? I'm going by Pluto still being a planet because I got a better education than you got today. Okay, so we have eight planets, including the Earth, the other eight planets, traveling around the sun unless you failed, you're still in the dark ages and you missed the Copernican revolution, right? So the Earth is revolving in the eight planets around the sun. The sun is 860,000 miles in diameter. That is 109 Earths. Temperatures reach, and I don't even know what this means, all honestly. Temperatures reach 27 million degrees Fahrenheit on the sun. What is that? I mean, <laughs> who measures that, right? Who took the thermometer up there? Sign me up for that mission, right? I mean, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, without light and heat from that sun, there is no earth, there is no life. Everybody got that? So do you know how we get the light and the heat? Because on the sun, there are called thermal nuclear reactions in the center of the sun. You know what this means? This means that 620 million metric tons of hydrogen fuse every second. Do you know what a metric ton is? I mean, just do a metric ton of dirt. Do a metric ton of a car. 
And now 620 million metric tons of hydrogen fuse. What? We're in crazy land now, y'all. I mean, this is crazy land. I don't even like to think about it. It just makes my head hurt. The sun's mass makes up 99.8% of the mass in the solar system. The Earth's mass, or let's put it this way, it's 333,000 times more massive than the Earth. Its, its force of gravity is so massive that if you take a 100-pound person on Earth and you put him on the sun, he will weigh or she will weigh 2,800 pounds. The size, if the sun was a skyscraper, Earth would be an individual person, okay? Trying to measure an individual person cannot be calculated on this scale. One year it takes for the Earth to rotate around the sun. It takes 200 million years for the sun to make one revolution around the Milky Way. Depending on your view of how old the Earth is, it might not, it may not have even made one turn yet. Here's the point. The sun is created life. The life in verse 4 is uncreated life. Uncreated life. In him was And that life was the light of men. Verse 4 is saying, In him there was a time when there was no struggle for meaning. There was a time when meaning had so radiated and filled and grasped and gripped and completed and made whole humans and relationships and careers and the home and the family, the world was so overdosed with life that it was like life. Meaning went down to the roots of the existence of these folks, and it was like light, uncreated light. There was a time when there was no darkness. There was a time when there was no meaninglessness. There was a time when there was no futility. There was a time when there was no despair. There was a time when there was no depression. There was a time when there was no collapsed self. There was a time when there was no sinking self. How should we see Jesus? John says, here, take these and put them on. And when you put them on, what you're going to see is my word. He's the mystery of meaning. He's the meaning of life. D.H. Lawrence's poem called The Third Thing captures the mystery this way. He says water is H2O, right? So it's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. But, quote, there is also a third thing that makes it water. 
and no one knows what it is. The third thing is the meaning of life. The third thing is the mystery of meaning. The struggle for meaning can shatter you. Jesus ends the struggle. Well, how does Jesus end the struggle for meaning? How does he do that? Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who does John think he is? I mean, who does he think he is? He's claiming to not only know what happened in the beginning, which modern science says was 14 billion years ago. John's not only claiming to know what happened, he's claiming to know who was already there. Well, who was already there, according to John? Who was already there? He says the Word, the Lagos. For the ancient person, the logos, the meaning of life. For the Hebrew person, this was the, the spoken word. This, is what, this was the one that spoke, let there be light, and there was. This is the one that spoke meaning to life. This is the one whose words are life itself. This is the one whose words are meaning itself in the Hebrew world. So you take the, the ancient world, the Hebrew world together. Who was already there? They would say the logos, the meaning of life, the spoken word the one who speaks and life happens. The one who speaks and meaning takes place. The one who speaks and fullness happens. The one who speaks and you're complete. The one who speaks and there's peace. Well, who else was, who, who is this guy that was already there? Well, John says some more things. He says the word Look in verse 1, that was with God. So here you have, you have the Word in community with God. So are we now talking about two gods? Because you have God, you have the Word with God in a relationship with God. So there's this community, there's this relationship. Is this two gods? You keep reading. The Word in verse 1, however, was God. So God himself. So it's not two gods. It's actually one God, but there are two persons, and we know that they're persons because the word in verse 2 turns to a he. So it's not a rational principle that's the meaning of life. It's a preexistent person who's the meaning of life. Who was already there? Who was already there when you see the historical Jesus? Who was already there when you see Jesus in time and space? Who was already there when you see Jesus call disciples to himself? Who was already there when he turns water into wine? Who was already there when he heals the dude at the pool? Who was already there? Jesus. Jesus was already there. So Jesus ends the struggle for meaning because Jesus is God himself. Come to earth to end the struggle, to overcome the darkness. Luther preached in this passage, you know what he said, I love the way he talked. He preached in this passage and he says, If Christ is not true and natural God, born of the Father in eternity and creator of all creatures, we are doomed. 
He goes on to say, for what would Christ's suffering and death avail me if Christ was just a human being like you and me? If he's just a human being like you and me, he can't overcome death. He can't win against the darkness. He can't defeat sin. He can't crush the devil. If he's just like you and me, we're doomed. So he goes on to say, no, we must have a Savior who is true God and true Lord over sin, death, the devil, and everything depends on it. Everything depends on it. So John is saying, do you see? John is saying, do you see what's happening here? God himself has come, and everything depends on it. So Jesus is not a shaman. Jesus is not a spiritual leader. Jesus is not a spiritualist. Jesus is not a holy man. Jesus is not a, a magician. He's not a seer. He's not a powerful miracle worker. He's not a male Mother Teresa. He's not a revolutionary. He's not a gifted preacher and teacher. Jesus is God himself. God himself. Everything depends on it. Everything depends on it. The struggle for meaning can shatter you, but Jesus ends the struggle. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. God is in the grammar. I tell you that over and over again. It, he, it, it, it's right here. This is the first time in this passage that the present tense verb is used. Let that sink in. So that means whatever we were just talking about, who was already there, phenomenal stuff to see has now landed in the present. So what's happening in verse 5 is a present tense reality. So there is a light that's shining now in the darkness. There's a light that's shining now in your darkness. There's a light that's shining now in your wrecked relationships. There's a light that's shining now in a wrecked world. God is on the move, this text is saying, right now. God is at work right now. God is on the move where you're most desperate. God is on the move in the darkest of depressions. God is on the move in. Notice where he's on the move. The darkness. Y'all, this is absolutely unbelievable. God is shining light, not in light. There's no such thing. Do you want to, it's like this, John is saying, listen, what you're about to see is this. Do you want to know where God's at work? Do you want to know where is God on the move? How do you know he's at work? John says, find the darkest places. Find the blind. Find the unforgiven. Find the ones locked in guilt. Find the ones with crumbling relationships. Find the ones stuck in a cycle of addiction. Find the ones that are being persecuted. Find the ones that have a collapsed self. Find the ones who are sinking in the muck. Find the ones in darkness. That's where you find him. In Jesus, what's happening is God has come and he's descended to the depths, darkest, deepest depths of darkness. 
Jesus in God has come to the very dead center of meaninglessness. He's come to the very dead center of absolute emptiness. He descended to the very dead center of darkness. And this is what he did. He takes it. The night. And takes it into himself. And kills it. Crushes it. The word there is overcomes it. When it means overcome, it means he triumphs. When it means you overcome, you put your foot on its throat. When you overcome, you dominate it. When you overcome, you're king and lord over it. When you overcome, you win. So, I don't know who I am anymore, Karen says. And to all the Karens out there, John says, listen, find yourself in Jesus' gracious love for you. Find yourself. Find your collapsed self. Find your sinking self in the gracious love of Jesus because Jesus is God himself. And he came for you. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And Keith says, look, if there is a God, he can't be all, he can't be all loving, and he can't be all powerful, because if he, if he was, how can so much suffering and pain happen in my life? How can so much suffering and pain happen in the world? And John says to him, and as a spokesman this morning, I say to you, find your peace in Jesus Find your peace in Jesus because Jesus is God himself come for you in darkness. That means he's all loving. And he's come for you to this earth in the darkness to crush it and kill it and destroy it and overcome it. And that means he's all Struggle for meaning can shatter you. Jesus ends the struggle. Amen.